Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome, everyone, to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm your host, Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting, and I'm happy to have with me today Ryan Work, Senior Vice President of Government Relations for the Self-Insurance Institute of America, and Chris Canalucci, who is an attorney, Washington Counsel for the Self-Insurance Institute of America. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you so much for being with us again this season. Thanks, Dorothy, for having us. Yeah, thank you. Well, a lot's happened over this past summer. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have been going crazy. Uh, that affects health insurance and particularly the self-insurance industry. So I have to ask, did you guys get any vacation time over the summer or was it all work? It was a little bit of both. I think for an, for an election year, it, it's a, it was a very busy summer on the regulatory front, but at least, you know, I, I got to the beach for a little bit and camping and fishing and that's, that's all I need to refresh. So I'm, I'm happy with that. <laughs> yeah, as I've commented, you know, August in Washington, D.C. is typically very, very slow. This August was 100% the opposite. So 180 of, of a typical August with Congress um, staying in town for additional weeks and then the administration uh, dropping a whole lot of information on us relating to surprise billing, transparency and coverage rule, et cetera. Yeah, I know it's been crazy. We had the Dobbs versus Jackson decision, and then we had the Marietta versus DeVita decision, which we're going to be talking about today. And of course, as you mentioned, Chris, the No Surprises Act updates, uh, not a lot going on there, right? This <laughs> is all kinds of stuff. So let's go ahead and first start talking about the Marietta versus DeVita Supreme Court decision, because I know that was a huge, huge victory for the self-insurance industry. And frankly, you know, it didn't get all that much pressed, uh, you know, except within the heart of the self-insured industry, because I think the timing with the Dobbs case taking over the news cycle really overshadowed this decision, but it's really super important, so I want to talk about it. Can you give us a little background on the case, you know, the prior case? Let's start with that before it reached the Supreme Court, because starting in 2020, I started hearing a lot about this from you guys, from the Self-Insurance Institute of America. Uh, so if you guys could talk about DeVita and the Medicare Secondary Payer Act and just kind of give us background on it. So back in 2011, Dorothy, um, Medicare changed their their payments for dialysis from a per dose reimbursement to a per dialysis session, and magically, all of a sudden, those the doses that the dialysis providers were giving were cut in half. But along with that came increase in dialysis charges. And so you fast forward a couple of years, and self insured health plans like like many um, employer based plans and others. We're trying to mitigate the rising cost of dialysis care. And as a lot of listeners probably understand, dialysis along with cancer is one of the highest expenses for a lot of employer plans. And not only that, but obviously patients, once they're on dialysis, a lot of those patients need dialysis multiple times a week, most likely for the rest of their lives. So it's not an expense that's going to go away. But what that's led to is that while Medicare is reimbursing at a rate of like 260 per treatment or about $1,000 a week, the dialysis providers are charging $1,000 per treatment or $4,000 a week to self-insured plans. And for that reason, a lot of plans have taken dialysis uh, care out of network, not because they, they want to reduce uh, treatment to the patient. In fact, it's the opposite, but it helps them uh, manage and mitigate the cost of dialysis because it's a little anathema perhaps to some folks. But the fact is that having that out of network dialysis treatment allows plans and their partners to actually better negotiate prices versus if it was a network. And the reason I say that is because all of a sudden DeVita and Fresenius who have about 90% of the U.S. dialysis market kind of caught on to this. And they're trying to make up revenue because of the loss of revenue they're having in Medicare. You know, 40% 40 of dialysis revenue comes from just the 12% of patients on employer-based care, right? Which is a fascinating number to me. And so over the course of the past several years, 
DeVita specifically has filed lawsuits against self-insured plans on the on the fact that they're taking dialysis treatment out of network. And over and over again, they've lost. And that was really the genesis of the of the DeVita case was whether or not self-insured plans can take not only patients um, out of network, but this this false narrative, I think, that the dialysis providers have that doing so not only violates the Medicare Secondary Payment Act, MSPA, but also that self-insured plans and others are kicking dialysis patients off their plans, which is, is just patently false. And so over the summer, and as you said correctly, Dorothy, it kind of got overshadowed by what was a very... Um, was was a lot of high level important cases out of the court but during during that time the US Supreme Court in the 7-2 decision sided with Marietta Hospital Health Plan self-insured health plan against Davida basically the court sided with Marietta and said look you you can in fact have dialysis treatment out of network it doesn't violate the MSPA as long as everyone on the plan is being treated um the same and that's exactly what has been happening. Um, and so that kind of has given us the policy and legislative environment that we see today. Well, thank you, Ryan. I, you know, you talked about this, um, and talked about this summer. Uh, some things happened, though. There was a prior case back in 2020, was there not, that led up to this, the Supreme Court decision in 2022? There, there were, on, I mean, that's part of an ongoing series of litigation in the in the federal court system that that led up to the Supreme Court decision correct okay thank you so we talked about the MSPA the basics of that uh, can you tell us a little bit about the coordination with Medicare uh, and plan members entitled to dual health plan uh, and Medicare coverage you know I know that there were some competing theories as you call them of dialysis companies can you tell us a little bit about that so under the MSPA or the Medicare Secondary Payment Act, and a lot of self-insured plans also probably deal with it even more, for instance, on workers, on the workers' comp side. But it, the Medicare Secondary Payment Act basically coordinates private sector health plan and Medicare coverage for plan members that are eligible for, for either for dual, like a dual plan, so an employer and the Medicare um, but in the case of dialysis, dialysis and ALS are the only two diseases that actually automatically enroll somebody in Medicare regardless of age or income. So if you have um, end-stage renal disease, you're, you're automatically eligible for Medicare. Now, under the MSPA, employer plans must cover a patient up to 30 months prior to that dialysis patient going over to Medicare. So basically, if there's a dialysis patient with end-stage renal disease on an employer plan, that employer plan is mandated under the MSPA to cover that dialysis for a 30-month period before that, um, that patient, that eligible participant in the health plan, then goes over to Medicare coverage. Um, and and that's, where, that's where the MSPA ensures there's not only no discrimination against that patient, but that the employer plans are not kicking off, for instance, those patients from their plans so they can save money, so they can go to Medicare, which just simply isn't happening. Okay, thanks, Ryan. Uh, can you tell us about the, well, not quite a monopoly, but near monopoly of the dialysis facilities uh, while this was all going on? Yeah, I know I mentioned a little bit before, but the fact is that David and Fresenius, the, the two major dialysis providers in this country, account for about 90% of the entire market. A lot of people say that that would be a monopoly. Um, and while, you know, I'll, I'll repeat the statistic because I think it's important, is that while only about 12% of overall dialysis patients, people with chronic kidney disease nationwide, are covered by private sector health plans, their treatment is actually 40% of dialysis revenue. And to me, that points uh, to the fact that these dialysis providers are overcharging the private sector plans quite a bit in order to make up for their revenue for Medicare patients. One of the, the things that we're lagging behind in the U.S. is in-home dialysis treatment. So if you look at some place like Hong Kong, for instance, 80% of dialysis patients in Hong Kong receive in-home treatment. You look at, for instance, Guatemala, where 30 or 40% 
of folks on dialysis received in-home treatment. But then you go to the U.S. and there's only 10. And there's a reason for that. It's because by going to dialysis clinics, it's not only cheaper for providers, but it allows them to get more revenue out of that. And when you're a DaVita and you have about a billion dollars in annual revenue and you know you want more by charging employer plans even higher rates you know we have a problem on our hands yeah for sure i know a lot of my clients that are self-insured uh use reference-based pricing others use network but uh on the rbp plans you know their benefits might range 130 to 175 percent let's say at least my clients of medicare and you know i've seen dialysis charges between a thousand percent and two thousand percent of medicare so that's quite a bit of, uh, of difference in pricing uh, and, and the, the way they're building and the way they're charging. Yeah, and, and I think just from, just from the academic research out there on dialysis costs, private sector plans are paying at least four times more on average than the Medicare reimbursement rate. Right. So, you know, like I said, if, you know, on average, Medicare is paying about $1,000 a week for probably three treatments. Um, three to four treatments in the private sector, they're paying on average 4000 per week. Yeah, that's a lot of money when you talk about uh, self-funded health plan, when they're paying all that out of their own uh, you know, checking accounts. That's, that's, that's quite a bit of money for sure. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So why was this case so important to self-funded health plans in general? I think it was important for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, it's, it's about uh, the ability of self insured plans to be able to do cost containment. I mean, that's really the bottom line of this. Um, and it was also going back to the, the focus of the case about coverage of dialysis coverage under the Medicare Secondary Payment Act. And it's something that the dialysis providers have been after for a while. So to me, it's really twofold. It's allowing plans under the MSPA to appropriately do cost containment measures. Um, but more importantly, I think it's also just a larger um, win for self-insured plans and that they can do that cost containment. And there's not, you know, there's never been legislative intent to dictate in and out of network coverage or cost containment capabilities. And we strongly believe that that should never be the case. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk specifically about what happened in June uh, with the Marietta versus DeVita case. Uh, I know that SIA was very active in this. Uh, you were involved with the submission of amicus briefs and so forth. Can you tell us a little bit more about that process? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've already laid the, the foundation of why it's important to us. And so as this case wound through the federal court system and then finally to the Supreme Court, we felt it was necessary to at least outline the you know, from a from a more kind of industry independent um, perspective for Marietta, uh, for Marietta's purposes, as to one how self insured plans were were participating in dialysis, how they were uh, part of the payment process, but more importantly, how they operated, were managed, and were undergoing cost containment. Um, efforts that were not in violation of the MSPA. Because the fact is, if we had lost this case and DeVita won, um, everybody, you know, fully insured, self-insured plans alike would be paying uh, high, even higher reimbursement rates than we already were for dialysis, which I, I, would, I would argue is already well, um, well above, you know, any reasonable profit going on. Well, that's for sure. I agree with you on that 100%. Well, I personally want to thank you both and everyone at SIA for your involvement uh, you know, in this case and, and for fighting to protect the interests of self-funded health plans. Uh, as you know, I do a lot of self-funded uh, plans with my clients, and, and this was pretty important to all of them. So I just wanted to say thank you very much for all your efforts to, to all of you, and, and uh, it was just really great the way you guys stepped up. Thank you. And I think, Dorothy, one of the, one of the important things that we also want to make sure folks are aware of is that after the Supreme Court decision, uh, Marietta and DeVita have inter have gotten legislation introduced in the House and Senate that would basically overturn the Supreme Court decision. And what this legislation does is basically put self-funded plans, actually any any private sector plans in a in a corner, and it would basically it basically legislates that you have to treat um, any chronic disease the same. So basically what that would mean is if you're taking dialysis out of network, you would have to also take 
other chronic disease treatments out of network, like maybe cardiac care, or rather if you treat uh, other chronic diseases in network, that would also force you then to uh, treat dialysis in network. And there was a political article about a month ago, basically outlining how DeVita literally wrote this legislation and had Congress drop it, um, mainly through the Congressional uh, doc Doctors Caucus. But right now there's companion bills in the House and Senate. And um, Chris and I, Cyan General, with a lot of partners are actively engaged on the Hill to make sure that this legislation doesn't um, doesn't get any further, doesn't see legs, doesn't see light um, at the end of this year, because having them legislate the overturning of the Supreme Court case would be like us losing. And that legislation going through would increase not only dialysis costs, but it would put even more revenue into the hands of David and Fresenius. But really, it would put Congress in a box and that it would allow Congress to get involved in private sector rate negotiation, which we think is a very dangerous proposition. So it's something for, I think, all your listeners to be aware of and pay attention to, and if need be, push back on their members of Congress from supporting um, this legislative effort being pushed by the dialysis providers. Well, thanks for that information, and I for sure will be staying in touch with you guys and, and seeing exactly what uh, what what happens here because it is very important. And I hope that you'll, as you always do, uh, reach out to all the members and so that we can reach out to our clients and so forth. That if this does start to go forward, we can help you uh, sending some letters, and making some phone calls, and all that sort of uh, sort of thing. Because of course, we don't want this to go any further. So again, thanks for your efforts. We really appreciate it. Of course. Well, I want to change gears a bit and move to the other reason I wanted to have you with me today, and that was that there were new rules released on August 19th for the No Surprises Act and the final rule. What's included in the final rule in general? Yeah, Dorothy, I can jump in on that if, uh, if Ryan will indulge me. Um, you know, Ryan and I have, have talked a lot about this, both uh, just he and I. Um, uh, Sai has given uh, a webinar presentation on the rules as well. Um, and really where we've boiled it down is, um, you know, the federal departments and the, the final regulations released on August 19th really dealt with three main areas um, or three main components, maybe is a better way of referring to. Uh, first was the elimination of the rebuttable presumption standard, which I know we'll get into a little more detail about. Uh, the second component was requiring additional information when a payer down code or changes the service code that was in the provider's initial bill when that provider sent that bill to the payer. And again, we can get in more detail there. And then the third main component was reminding federal arbiters or certified independent resolution entities or CEDRAs uh, that they must provide a detailed explanation of their final determination as relates to why they made the decision, what evidence they uh, looked to and found credible and what weight they uh, placed on that evidence um, and additional information to ultimately make a final decision. So really, those are the three components. And I guess I'll lastly say this and then turn it back to you, Dorothy, is in the lead up to the August 19th release, uh, I mean, first, we, we actually thought we would see final regs as early as July 1st, right before the July 4th holiday. Fortunately, that didn't happen, so we could all enjoy our holiday with our families and friends, which was which was great. So every weekend, you know, throughout July and, and the first half of August, we were on the edge of our seats waiting for regs to come out. And we actually thought that the regs would be much more detailed. Um, we knew that they would talk about the rebuttal presumption standard, but we did think that there would be um, more detail on things like how to calculate the QPA, uh, what are the rules in and around utilizing a third-party database, uh, what rules and requirements do entities have to meet in order to become an eligible third-party database? But we didn't see those rules. Instead, we saw these three main components as mentioned. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I was kind of relieved too because, as you mentioned, on the weekends, because that's what they always do. They always pretty much release regulations um, on, on a Friday afternoon. Most of the time before a three-day weekend, right? <laughs> uh, notorious. Yes, notorious for that. And I don't know what their whole 
thought process is on that. Maybe they want to get it off their desk so that they can enjoy the weekends. And then we're the ones stuck having to review all this stuff all weekend long. But yeah, um, it, I was I was obviously one of those people that was also looking forward to that. So thank you for that for that explanation. Well, let's talk first about the uh, independent dispute resolution process. You mentioned that. Can you start off by telling us, you know, about the second quarter data on dispute resolutions in the federal portal just to get us started? Yeah, Ryan, why don't you take that uh, question on the data? Yeah, sure. No, I'm happy to. I mean, one of the, you know, as Chris pointed out, there was, this was, uh, this final rule in the guidance was actually like a big data dump on price transparency and surprise billing. And it takes a, a while to go through all of it. But deep down in, um, in the documents, Dorothy, there was an, an interesting update when it came to um, arbitration decisions. And much like we had thought, uh, there, there have been a lot more uh, disputes initiated than the federal agencies ever thought would happen in an entire year. So basically from April until August, um, over 46,000 new disputes were initiated under the surprise billing law, which, which just in that short time period exceeded all of what the federal agencies thought would be done uh, in the entire year. But I think what's most interesting out of those 46,000 is that 21,000 of those were challenged, um, 7,000 were found ineligible, and out of the 46,000, or the only 1,200 have actually had payment determinations made. So I think that's important for folks to understand that, look, there is a lot going to arbitration now. There's a lot being challenged. And remember, you can't really challenge until you basically get to the latter stage of the arbitration process in and of itself. Um, but I think that also demonstrates that there's simply not a lot of decisions that have been made. Um, before we got on today, the, the last point I'll make is there's right now only 12 federally approved arbitration entities. And again, the federal agencies thought that there would be 30, 40, 50. We're actually looking at 12. But here's what I just found out, too, is that out of the 12, two are so bogged down that they're actually not taking any more arbitration cases. So in reality, if you initiate an arbitration decision today, you're only looking at 10 possible arbiters or arbi you know, arbitration organizations that are even open to doing that right now. So I think the agencies have realized that there's fewer arbitration uh, organizations approved than they thought. And the ones that are left are getting inundated with you know, quadruple the amount of requests they originally thought. Wow. 12, 12, 12 of them. That's insane. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Chris, go ahead. Sorry. Let me interrupt just to piggyback off of uh, what Ryan just said. And it kind of segues into some other uh, points uh, regarding the final regs that we can talk about is, um, you know, out of the 10, there are even some that many folks in the industry on the payer side, both fully insured as well as self-insured uh, don't have the most confidence in. And in many cases, uh, when the initiating party and non-initiating party during the process have the ability to veto a particular arbiter, oftentimes uh, one party or the other is vetoing uh, one of those or, or the one of the suggested arbiters uh, due to some bad behavior that they've been experiencing over the past four months. And that further limits the pool of IDREs that uh, are going to be able to you know, hear these cases or, or, or review these disputes, which further adds to the bogging down and all of the data and, and the surprises, no pun intended, uh, that many of us had when we saw that data that the federal department released, which was one, there were more disputes than the departments had thought, many of us had thought, and there's a ton of disputes that are just on hold because either the IDREs haven't gotten to them because they're so bogged down, or they have been challenged, i.e. those disputes have been challenged as being not eligible, and they're still being determined by the IDRE as to whether those disputes are eligible. So the process is starting out, the IDR process, that is, is starting out a bit rocky, which we expected. Wow. And not to rain, not to rain on the parade more, but... but I think is it's kind of a natural progression, but the fact is that these arbiters who are involved are they they don't have the time and resources to go through all the data on all these cases, and we we've seen um, decisions in which the arbiter has not had an opportunity to look through all the data, 
or has dismissed data that I know we our members feel like they should have taken a look at. So I think it's created a rushed, overly complex, um, very stressed process that probably that I think the I think our hope is the agencies are realizing that and will make appropriate changes to streamline it. Yeah, well, from what I understand, I uh, actually heard it first from you guys last year, was that these arbiters are not being paid a whole lot for this. Uh, <laughs> so there's not a whole lot of people jumping forward and saying, I want to be an arbiter in this portal. Um, so I think that might have something to do with it. And, you know, like you said, there's just, there's so few and there's so many cases. And it sounds to me like when people are submitting the cases to the arbitration system, they're probably giving a lot of additional information that all those additional factors, which is probably just you know pages and pages and pages of documentation as to why these providers, for example, should get paid more. Am, am I am I on the right track there? From what you've seen, I, I think you're definitely on the right track. I mean, you know, as as right. I mean, even when the final rules came out, before we even knew how much the federal department was setting the prices for how much an IDRE is going to be paid, we both looked at the rules and like, wow. There's a lot of requirements that an entity has to meet in order to be a certified IDRE in the first place. So, wow, that's going to really limit those type of entities who will be serving as these IDREs. Then we got the cost um, that the federal government said, you know, this is the amount of money that, you know, IDREs are going to be paid. And it's a fairly low dollar amount based on the amount of work that IDREs are now finding that, they're, that they, they have to undertake and many of them in those two, is it's my understanding, have generally, you know, stopped taking uh, disputes because it's just they're losing money. It's it's not worth their while. So there's a bit of a problem um, on, you know, the department's hands here when it comes to getting enough IDREs. And then sadly, that trickles down to both parties here, the payers and the providers, because if we don't have competent IDREs or we have IDREs dropping out because they're not getting money, they're bogged out, whatever, um, that's a problem for everybody. Yeah, and I would, uh, I guess, what one of the things that we should be prepared to tell self-funded uh, employers and health plans is that if you do go into this process, don't expect it to be turned around quickly. Sounds like it's going to take quite a while for each of the cases to go through. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's not very much fun either. Well, tell us a little bit more about the downcoding and why that's important. Yeah. And that's, you know, the other aspect of the uh, final regs, so kind of switching back to the final regs going from the data is um, over the past six months, really, I'd say the past four months, because the federal portal, which is uh, the, 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 the initial entree into the federal IDR process was delayed until April 15th. So really, all of these IDR cases is April 15th, you know, up until about, let's say, August 15th. So we had four months of at least experience, right? And we've seen some of the data going back to that. That's what the federal department's reported. That's what we just talked about. But other experience that, uh, that, that, that federal departments that the payers providers have been seeing is in many cases, payers have been changing the codes that the provider initially included in the bill that the provider sent to the payer. And why that has been an issue, at least among the providers, the providers have said to the departments, actually they've complained to the department saying, hey, the payers are changing our codes. And in our opinion, the change to that code here, downcoding, results in a lower qualifying payment amount, a lower QPA. And if the QPA is going to be some sort of factor, which the arbiters, the IDREs look to, to make a final determination, if that QPA, that qualifying payment amount, that median in-network rate, which is what the QPA is, is artificially low because the payer, in the provider's opinion, manipulated the codes, i.e. downcoded, that's a problem. And it's my understanding the providers even went so far as to ask the departments to prohibit downcoding. But I say that to say in the July 1st interim final rule that was issued last year, as well as the September 30th interim final rule that was issued last year, the federal departments allowed the practice of downcoding. And that was because 
the departments understand that sometimes the providers just get it wrong. They get the wrong code or the codes that they put in there are confusing. Um, instead of breaking out particular codes for a number of, of, of services underneath an emergency care code, um, they're just, the providers are just providing one emergency care code. And that puts the payer at a disadvantage because they're like, well, what, what charges do I really have to pay attention to? And, and what do I want to dispute? What do I not want to dispute? So the payer has the ability to change those codes if the situation presents itself, but the providers are arguing that the payers have been changing the codes, i.e. downcoding, to their own advantage by manipulating what the qualifying payment amount would be. So the last point here, uh, Dorothy, is instead of outright prohibiting downcoding, the federal department said, hey, payers, if you downcode, you have to provide additional information relating to what you just did, which is you've got to tell them, tell the providers that you downcoded, you've got to include an explanation of why you downcoded, including a description of which codes or modifiers were altered or added or removed. And then you must specify the amount, the qualifying payment amount, this median in-network rate would have otherwise been had the codes not been downcoded. That's a lot of information. Thank you. Uh, I hope everyone understood that. Uh, those of us that are in this industry, of course, that's this. This is um, easy for us to understand. Those that you know only touch on it, you might be going, "What? What? What?" But I would suggest if you do have clients, if you're, for example, a broker or consultant, and you do have clients that are self-funded and and they're going through this type of system, this type of process. Uh, you need to do your homework on this because it's pretty it's pretty important stuff and and how this works is um is really important to uh, for example the self-funded client for sure the the employer who's you know paying for those benefits for their for their employees and their dependents so let's come back to what you mentioned a few moments ago the QPA determination uh and the payment considerations with the independent dispute resolution process that eliminates the rebuttal presumption standard which you talked about in the beginning can you walk our listeners through this yeah, and I think I can you know short shrift this one um, because we kind of knew where the departments were going on the rebuttable presumption standard and uh, the confirmation that the federal departments included in the final regs is a confirmation of what's what everybody has been doing over the past four months, which is uh, really not following the rebuttable presumption standard. So in short, the rebuttable presumption standard was included in the September 30th uh, in a refiner rule that was issued last year that I mentioned that the providers then challenged in court, uh, the court uh, said that the rebuttable presumption standard must go, the departments didn't have the authority to create it. What did the rebuttable presumption say in the first place? Well, this standard said that the uh, federal arbiter, the CEDRA, had to look to the qualifying payment amount, the median in network rate, and assume in arbitration that that was the final payment determination amount unless the providers could submit credible additional information to rebut the presumption that the QPA was the right amount. So fast forwarding to August 19th, um, the federal departments confirmed and said, hey, what the court said you know, a couple months ago that the federal uh, rebuttable presumption standard is gone, it is officially gone and therefore arbiters you cannot assume that the qualifying payment amount, the median in-network rate, is the final payment determination amount unless the provider can rebut it. Instead, Arbiter, you must look to the qualifying payment amount and any credible additional information that's permissible under the statute, which I don't want to get into detail in the interest of time, but that credible information that's submitted by the provider, the Arbiter has to look at both of that information weigh each of those pieces of information and determine which offer, the payer's offer or the provider's offer, represents the best payment amount for that out-of-network service or item that had been furnished. Thanks, Chris. Uh, well, this process allows the independent dispute resolution entities or the arbiters uh, or the CEDRAs, as you, as you call them, uh, to give equal weight to other information submitted in the process. What does this mean and why is it important? I know we talked about this last year, but uh, can you bring everyone up to speed on this? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll say this, and you know, maybe Ryan will want to chime in as well, and that is, you know, the qualifying payment amount, as I always keep referring to it in our discussion here, is the median in-network rate. And the federal departments articulated this in the interim final rules that were issued last year, and all of us payers, you know, believe this as well. That is, when you've negotiated a rate, when you have this arm's length transaction of what a rate should be, that really represents a reasonable market-based payment for this item or service that is being furnished. And if the IDRE can look to the provider's offer, which that provider offer is always going to be higher than what that negotiated rate was, then the arbiter is arguably agreeing to paying the provider unreasonable compensation getting a higher fee than they otherwise would if we had a reasonable market-based payment being the anchor of, of the decision process here. So the, to conclude, many of us would argue, I personally would argue, that this is just going to increase healthcare costs. It's just going to increase premiums because more times than not, the IDRE is going to uh, be led to ruling in favor of the provider's offer, which 99.9% .9 time is going to be higher than this median in-network rate, which just means, again, the providers are getting unreasonable compensation and higher fees than what we would argue Congress even intended. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Uh, well, let's talk about the federal arbitration decisions and the offers that are, you know, that happen in this process. How are the arbiters making decisions, and and what are they relying on? Can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, and it's stuff that we've talked about in the past. Um, so it, it, it's not so much the final reg. Um, so I just want to stipulate that point. Um, there, there are specific. Uh, additional information as we refer to it, that the statute actually says that the arbiter can look to, or better stated, that the provider can submit to the arbiter to say, this is why, arbiter, you should pay me, provider, more money than what this median in-network rate is, is showing. And that information ranges from uh, uh, years of experience to uh, whether it's a teaching hospital, uh, patient acuity and complexity. And then another important factor being over the past four years, was there a contract in place between the provider and payer who are subject to the dispute? And it's that information that the provider can submit among you know two or three other uh, uh, statutory set additional information um, that the arbiter can consider. And um, that information, however, has to be quote unquote credible. Now, what is credible? And this may go back to <laughs> Dorothy, you're saying things are so complicated here. And the lawyer in me, obviously <laughs> I talk in, in complexity way too often, but credible is supposed to mean to the arbiter who's supposed to have expertise in healthcare and resolving disputes, credible has to be to them, it actually makes sense. Like It's like, yes, this is information that is important to me as the arbiter to, for me to do my job. And the reason I'm, I'm impressing upon this credible is because we've been seeing over the past four months that any information that an IDRE is receiving from the provider, the IDRE is just saying, oh, okay, thank you for that information. This is great. We're going to use this. We're going to weigh it, and we're going to uh, then determine that the provider here uh, should get whatever the uh, uh, provider is uh, requesting in its offer. So we're not getting the credible information um, piece to this, and hopefully that gets resolved later on down the line, but I know I'm going down the rabbit hole to say that is at least in a nutshell the process, and the last thing I'll say is there are prohibited factors that an IDRE cannot look to in arbitration. That includes uh, bill charges and usual customary rates. Um, you can't look to uh, public rates like Medicare rates um, in determining what that final payment amount should be. So those are the statutory uh, kind of guidelines that the IDREs are operating under. 
Yes. And you know what, though? I actually appreciate the lawyer in you and getting into the details. So um, I don't think that, I'm, to me, what you're saying is not complicated at all. But again, for those that are, are a little bit uh, overwhelmed by this whole process because it's just all new to them, it's just something you're going to have to get used to and you're going to have to deal with this on an ongoing basis. So, you know, you need to study up a little bit, as I mentioned. Uh, well, from what we've seen so far, you know, who does this process seem to favor? We've, we had probably one set of thoughts uh, last year, but now that we're four months into this. Does it seem to favor, in your opinion, health plans or the providers? What are your thoughts on that? I think it depends on who you ask, to be honest. Um, you know, in conversations I've had with folks on the fully insured side as well as on the self-insured side, over these past four months, uh, more times than not, you know, maybe it's like a 60-40%, providers have been winning. Um, but, you know, Ryan and I have talked to our SIA members and some of those SIA members have said, well, no, we're actually winning. We're actually, the, i.e. the payer here is winning. We're actually getting the arbiter to decide in our case. So it really depends on who you're asking, how many uh, disputes has a, a particular organization or entity um, been a part of. Um, but at least based on my experience, I, I think over the past four months, it's leaned provider. And now that the uh, federal departments have confirmed that the uh, rebuttable presumption standard is gone um, based on my comments about uh, increased prices or healthcare costs, that is, and increased ruling in, in favor of the provider. I think we're going to see that more often. Um, but is it going to be, you know, skewed? I doubt it. It still might be a 60 40, um, but that, that's at least my personal opinion based on what I've been seeing. And I would, I would, to put in my two cents, I mean, I, I agree with Chris. I also think it, it heavily depends on how organizations go about calculating the QPA and how they go about with their strategy on that and their negotiation. Um, the, the second thing that I'll say on this is looking, there was just a, a good research study that was put out on the various states that already have surprise billing laws on the books. And if you compare states that have arbitration within their surprise billing versus those that that have different um, have different factors, states like New York that have arbitration, well, their out of network non emergency bills have actually increased by twenty four percent. But if you look at states like California that don't rely heavily on arbitration, those same bills decrease by twenty five percent. And that, to me, if we're to take some of the states as examples of what's gone on over the past few years in these different processes, you know, arbitration certainly steers towards providers. However, um, I think that's tamped down a little bit by the guardrails that the federal agencies have in place. So, yes, I think that this, this veers a little into the provider's um, direction, but I think if done right, um, some of those numbers can can be brought down for for the payers themselves. Yeah, and I remember last year when we well, when we had you guys on the podcast, there seemed to be uh, some concern with the providers, and they were thinking that this whole thing uh, was very much in the health plan's favor, and they were looking at it as they were being picked on, so to speak. Um, that's really turned around for them, and I'm thinking that from based on what I'm hearing from you guys, it really comes down to uh, how well the health plans, you know, put together the information that they're submitting into mm -hmm. the portal and that maybe they need to get a little bit more practiced at that because is it possible that because the providers knew this was coming, that they've gotten very, very, very good at how they're submitting these things that they might, uh, you know, go in their favor? What do you think about that? I mean, let me sum it up this way, actually. I mean, to your point, you raised about when the previous podcast we suggested and the providers were complaining. So it, the evidence was out there that the providers thought that the, the September 30th interim fire rule, which I keep mentioning, um, that created the rebuttal presumption standard skewed the entire process in the favor of the payers. And that led to then the providers filing a lawsuit. And that led to a court striking down the rebuttal presumption standard that led to the federal department saying, okay, look, we, we've got to deal with what the court said. So the federal department's reacted uh, over these past four months to saying, hey, until we issue final regs, the rebuttable resumption standard is gone. And then many of us, as we were waiting for the final regs to be released, we didn't know which way the departments were going to go. And then they confirmed the rebuttable presumption is indeed gone. 
So this pendulum has swung, in my opinion, where many argued that uh, the rules were uh, skewed toward payers, providers won, and now the pendulum has swung such that uh, the process, in my opinion, is at least ex is, is skewed now more to the providers, but not in a significant degree based on my 60-40 comment. And, and I, I, I have, I, there's two things that are going to happen in the future, I think. I mean, one, as, as folks get further through arbitration and have experience, I think the amount of arbitration initiation is going to be reduced, or at least going all the way to like a, an independent arbitration entity. Because um, some of those numbers are going to be just vetted out. And I think it's going to be important, as I, per my last point, that payers are, are very smart and strategic about how they come up with the QPA and the additional factors. You know, Chris mentioned the lawsuits. There's actually nine lawsuits going on by the providers. I mean, everything from the constitutionality of the entire law to the, the rebuttable presumption. I also believe that the providers will continue to drop lawsuits against any final rule that comes out. And it will be probably several years until we have finality on on some of these and so it's just going to be a ride a, a ride on a bumpy road until we get you know to the end of the tunnel yeah thank you for that uh ryan um in the final rule the federal departments explain how self-funded group health plans should calculate the qpa when the plan offers multiple benefit plan options administered by different tpas can you walk us through what those rules say on that yeah and i could touch on that briefly um, and actually, that, that clarification was set forth in a set of frequently asked questions. So back to Ryan's comments earlier, where there was a big data dump on August 19th, where we got the final reg, which I spoke to. We got the data that Ryan spoke to, and I touched on a bit. Um, the departments also issued uh, frequently asked questions. There were actually uh, 23 of them, and 20 of them were devoted, or no, 21 of them, excuse me, were devoted to surprise billing. And they did provide, these FAQs did provide some helpful clarifications, one being the one you just mentioned. And what you just mentioned um, deals with uh, how a self-insured plan is going to look to their third-party administrator to determine or calculate the QPA on behalf of that self-insured plan. Now, the way the process works is the federal departments gave self-insured plans, especially smaller and mid-sized, the flexibility to look to their TPA to calculate their qualifying payment amount, where they say, hey, TPA, look to all of the self-insured plans that you, TPA, are administering, including mine. Look to what the in-network rate is for each of those plans, including mine, that you are administering, identify the median, and that then represents the qualifying payment amount for my plan. That's kind of simple, so, you know, kind of straightforward, right? If you go to your TPA, they find the median based on all the other plans that they're administering. Well, there are instances in which a self-insured plan might offer multiple plan designs to which multiple TPAs are administered. And so the question then arose is, well, if we have multiple plan designs administered by multiple TPAs, how do we determine the QPA? Well, the FAQ, I, I think it's, it's, it's logical when you hear what the, the FAQ said, said, look, if plan design A is administered by TPA XYZ, it doesn't matter with plan design B, C, or D and who's administering them. You look to TPA XYZ and you say TPA XYZ. Look at all your plans, find the median, and that's the QPA for plan design A. So when you have multiple plan designs, you simply look to the TPA that is administering the respective plan design that is subject to dispute and the story. Simple as that, right? <laughs> um, let's, let's talk about RBP plans and the arbitration process. There were some clarifications under the final rules about RBP calculations. Can you let us know what they determined and what was clarified in the final rule? Yeah, a couple things here. Um, first, you know, as Ryan and I have always been saying, and I believe we said it on the prior podcast, um, when it comes to RBP with no network, you are always going to be subject to the surprise billing protections, the federal protections 
in an emergency care out-of-network situation. However, if there is no network, the RBP plan never has an in-network medical facility to which an out-of-network provider is providing services, which in that situation, the surprise billing uh, protections apply. So if you don't have a network, you don't have an in-network facility, and therefore that aspect of the surprise billing protections are never gonna apply. So emergency care, always apply. Uh, in-network facility, it doesn't matter what's being um, serviced there, not gonna apply from a surprise billing perspective. So we got that clarification from the departments as it relates to RBP. Um, another kind of question that had been swirling around is, how does an RBP plan develop their QPA? Um, one argument or one school of thought was, well, uh, a plan with no network obviously doesn't have any negotiated in-network rates, which is the component, the basic component of the QPA. So if I don't have an in-network rate, how can I develop my QPA? Well, the regs say if you don't have sufficient information here, you don't have an in-network rate to develop your QPA, you must go to a third-party database, utilize their data, and develop a QPA that way. So many RVP plans with no network said, we're going to use third-party databases to develop our QPA. Others said, well, you can quote-unquote derive an amount to determine or almost to replicate like a proxy for a contracted rate, a network rate here for developing the QPA. And that derived amount is simply what might be in the plan document, which is the reference-based payment. It's the typical reimbursement that you've been making to these out-of-network providers, what you have on your books from an accounting perspective. So you can almost make up a number. And if you have multiple derived amounts for the same medical items or services, you can develop a median and you can then say, this is my QPA. So these two different schools of thought were clarified by the federal departments where the federal department said, look, if you're an RBP plan with no network, you can't derive an amount unless you have a contract for not fee for service or being paid on a not fee for service basis, which as I always understand RBP with no network, you don't fall into that category. So the conclusion is you must use a third-party database to determine your QPA if you are RBP with no network. Thank you very much, Chris, for that uh, explanation. Uh, in the FAQs, there were some uh, transparency and coverage clarifications on the machine-readable files. What were those clarifications? Uh, that clarification said, uh, if you are a self-insured plan and you do not have a website, for your plan. Even if the employer sponsor has their own website, the employer and plan can actually contract with a TPA to post a link to the machine readable files for that particular plan. So in other words, the plan doesn't have a, 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 a website, even though the employer sponsor does, the employer sponsor slash plan can enter into a written agreement with the TPA and say, post my link to my machine readable files in compliance with transparency and coverage rule. And the department said that is enough for compliance with these rules, which as everyone knows, was effective on July 1st of this year. Right, thank you for that. Uh, changing gears a bit, because I want to cover this as our my last question for you today. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act has some drug pricing provision, does it not? Uh, what does this include? And if you could walk us through, you know, the brief timeline uh, on this, if you could. Yeah, let me jump in, and, and Ryan, uh, feel free to jump in from an impact perspective. Um, there were three components to the drug pricing reforms included in the Inflation Reduction Act. The first was allowing uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, to negotiate certain prescription drugs for Medicare. Now let me say Medicare three times. Medicare, Medicare, Medicare. So the negotiations for prescription drugs, only Medicare, not private insurance, only Medicare. The second component, and I'll get into detail a second on the negotiations in a moment, but the second component was uh, an out-of-pocket maximum for Medicare Part D beneficiaries as well as a, a redesign 
of the Part D program, which actually does impact private sector Part D plans. Um, I won't go into detail on that, um, but if you happen to have like a private sector Part D plan, like you're trying to uh, meet the actuarially equivalence standard under the Part D rules, um, you know, come ask Ryan and I questions about it uh, because uh, th there is an impact on the Part D redesign based on the drug price reforms. And the third uh, component was placing caps or limits or thresholds on the price increases that drug manufacturers could have for a particular drug year over year. And, and these caps are tied to inflation. So we call them inflationary caps. And these inflationary caps simply say, if a drug maker increases the price of a prescription drug uh, at a rate higher than the prior year's inflation, then the drug maker has to reduce the price to the inflationary amount increase or pay the Medicare uh, trust fund some sort of overage, the delta between the price the manufacturer is charging and what that inflationary increase otherwise was. Now, what's important on this inflationary cap, I'll say it three times, Medicare, Medicare, Medicare. The inflationary caps only takes into account prescription drugs that Part B and Part D of Medicare buy. And why do I keep mentioning this Medicare three times? Because in prior iterations of the Inflation Reduction Act, um, the Medicare negotiations for prescription drugs, or the negotiation that is, did have a private insurance component to it. That's gone. That fell out. That never made its way into law. Same with the inflationary caps. Um, there was a private insurance component to calculating you know, the formula for determining whether uh, a drug maker indeed increased prices faster than inflation. And private insurance was part of that calculation. It's gone. No more. It is just Medicare. But the last thing I'll say, Dorothy, and I know I didn't answer your uh, time frames, but I, I know I'm talking too much to say this. The impact here, and, and maybe this is a segue to you, Ryan, is there's going to be a cost shift, in our opinion. If these drug pricing reforms are limited to Medicare only, obviously the drug makers are going to be losing revenue. Well, where do drug makers make revenue up? We just talked about it in the DeVita uh, Presidius instance, where they're charging private sector plans, you know, multiples of Medicare much higher to recoup lost revenue based on public payer reimbursements. So we could very well see that in the next five to 10 years when it comes to a cost shift. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll finish with this. I mean, we, we had a lot of concerns with the entirety of the drug pricing negotiation provisions, even with private plans included. And that has to do with government rate setting. Um, and on the, on the other hand, where it, where it got passed, I think, it, to, as Chris mentioned, there's concerns over private sector cost shifting when Medicare is only reimbursing a set amount for certain high cost drugs. And Dorothy, you asked for a timeline. So beginning in 2026, Medicare will negotiate um, the, the prices for the top 10 drugs under the Medicare formulary. That increases to 20 as of 2029. And so those will increase between 2026 to 2029, yep. up to 20 under parts B and D. And I think what will be interesting over that time period is what the, the cost increases for those drugs will look like in the private sector. Um, the last thing I'll mention in the Inflation Reduction Act is there was a lot of discussion on capping insulin rates. And we've seen that in a number of states. And one of the things that Congress is going to look at over the next two to three months is whether they can move uh, an insulin cap through, you know, through Congress as a standalone or as a, as a policy rider. And so, you know, part of that, especially for private sector plans, is going to continue. And that's something to uh, to look out for as well. Yeah. Close the loop on timing. 2026, 2029, as Ryan mentioned, with negotiations for uh, prescription drugs with met within Medicare. Uh, the out-of-pocket maximum in the Part D redesign is actually effective uh, 2023, and same with the inflationary cap. It's my understanding is 2023, maybe it's 2024, but it's 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 soon. So the points of my jumping back in is to say, even though the negotiations have a long tail to it, the other two components 
um, are effective uh, much more quickly, and therefore this concern about cost shifting may, you know, rear its ugly head sooner rather than later. And the last thing back on the negotiations on impact, you know, as Ryan mentioned, there's only 10 prescription drugs that HHS can negotiate the price of. That's a small number of drugs relative to all the other prescription drugs, of course, that Medicare purchases. That grows to 20, but that's still only 20. Um, so there will be arguably a limited impact on the negotiation side, uh, but it's still a price cap. It's price setting, and it will be curious to see how all of this plays out, uh, both politically as well as practically, over the next five to 10 years. Well, thanks so much, you guys. I really appreciate it. We are out of time today. But thank you for being with me today and providing so much valuable information. And on a personal note, I once again, I want to say as a member of SIA and, you know, a legislative and regulatory geek of sorts as I am, um, I just want to thank you again for all your efforts and everything that you do, not only for the members of SIA like myself, but also for the entire industry. So once again, thank you very, very much for all your efforts. Thanks, Dorothy. We appreciate you having us. Yeah. and Thanks so much. Yeah. And if anybody wants to know more about SIA or wants to reach out to you guys, how can they do that? They can reach us through our website or um, my email is rworkatsia.org and Chris's is ccondolucci at sia.org. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Ryan and Chris. It's always such a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thanks so much. And to everybody else out there, please stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned next week for another episode of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835. Or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.